0: Welcome to the Master of None podcast. Adventures in a hands-on life. Build. Grow. Cook. Train. Explore. We are back to finish up, hopefully complete, our discussion of our top 10 critical bushcraft skills we've already covered numbers one through six so we're going to jump right in at number seven today and finish up our list of 10 so our number seven bushcraft skill is how to handle a knife and this may sound really simple but a knife ends up being one of my top bushcraft skills tools or pieces of gear or whatever you want to call it and you have some options when it comes to what kind of knife you have with you i would recommend for if we're talking about solely for bushcraft purposes i'm going to recommend some sort of fixed blade knife now i oftentimes almost always in fact carry a pocket folder i have it right here i really like having a pocket folder you can fold it up The blade folds into the handle, slip it into your pocket, has a little clip to hold it in place on your pocket, pull it out, open it up, and have a knife. The folder, though, does have some serious drawbacks. The main one being the weak point between the blade and the handle, and just the fact that it has, by its very nature, it has moving parts. As compared to a fixed blade knife, which I have right here, one of comparable size actually a little bit smaller than my folder but um one that's comparable size to many folding knives not knives knives but uh this one's a fixed blade knife and it has maybe a maybe a two and a half inch blade and maybe about a three inch handle so it's fairly small and the The real advantage with this this fixed blade knife is that there are no moving parts and the actual steel of the blade goes from the tip of the blade all the way back to the back end of the handle and then the handle pieces are just attached to that single piece of metal. So, very strong design. You don't have that weak point between the blade and the handle like you do with any sort of folder. Now, if... If we're talking for primarily bushcraft camping purposes i prefer something just a little bigger not excessively large let me pull this one out this is a fixed blade knife again the the blade material goes all the way through the handle so you don't have any weak point there and this one has maybe a oh maybe a five inch blade so considerably larger but it's something that you could you can keep it in the sheath. You, you don't even have to wear it on your belt or on your person. You can actually just pack it into your pack if that's what you prefer. And why do we need a knife? Well, the main things that I find myself using a knife for in a bushcraft setting are going to be cutting firewood or getting ready to start a fire, turning larger pieces of firewood into smaller pieces of firewood, so that's one of the main things i use it for which is why i like that uh, fixed blade because the method that we actually use for that i'm going to get it out i know you can't see me but i'm going to demonstrate anyway i'm gonna take my knife and i'm going to hold i'm actually going to hold the knife in my left hand most of the time when i'm using a knife being right-handed most of the time i'm holding it in my right hand in this case when i'm doing this i usually i guess now that i think about it i do it with both hands Anyway, hold the knife in either hand, and I will take a piece of firewood, something larger, I will actually set set that vertically on top of the ground or another stump or something like that, and set my knife blade right on the end, on the top end of that piece of wood, and then I'll take another piece of wood and actually just strike the back, the back of this blade. Now, being a nice stout knife, that's not going to damage it at all, and basically turns the knife into a splitting wedge and i can split if i when i'm preparing to start my fire and i need that smaller kindling if i have a stick that's maybe say an inch in diameter i can take this and i can split it into maybe four or six pieces that are much smaller and they have those split edges and the inside of that wood is going to be much drier and that's just going to make it a lot easier to get my fire started so I often use a knife for preparing to start a fire or even for my initial tinder. I will actually kind of scrape or shave off very, very thin pieces of wood until I have a whole handful of nice, dry, fluffy tinder. So that's, that's one thing that you're going to end up using a knife for. One of the other common uses of a knife is going to be cutting any sort of cordage. Now, we talked about knot tying and using rope As one of our previous items. So you're going to have to have something to cut that rope or cordage to length. Knife is going to be the best way to do that. You may also be using your knife for opening packaging, but a little tip here, anything that you have that's in some sort of packaging that you're going to have to open, go ahead and do that before you head out. Do that while you're still at home. So strip all of those items down, get rid of that packaging. That's going to do a couple things it's going to eliminate that weight, that extra weight. It might be minimal, but it's going to eliminate the extra weight of that packaging from your pack. You're not having to haul it with you. Also, once you have that packaging opening open, then you have trash and it's going to be easier to dispose of that trash at home instead of having to haul that trash along with you on the rest of your trip. And I was thinking that maybe there was a third thing, but now I can't think of a third thing. That's that's the main thing is just eliminating that weight from your pack and the need to pack the trash out and keep it contained, find something to do with it. So do that at home. Strip all of those items down at home that are in any sort of packaging. Now, some things, let's say that you have some sort of little super meal mix that comes in a little bag. Sometimes it comes in a foil type bag it's dehydrated or freeze dried and you can cut it open, dump hot water in there, mix it up and eat right out of the bag. Again, having a good sharp knife to open that bag, that can be really helpful. Uh, What else do we use our knife for out in the woods? If you're doing any sort of food preparation, whether that's like the example that I just gave, food that you've brought with you, or if you're foraging any sort of wild plant, it can be helpful to have a knife to cut that up into bite sized pieces. Or if you are harvesting any sort of wild animal, same thing, having a knife for skinning the animal, for cutting the animal up into uh, bite sized pieces, that could be another thing that you're using your knife for. Now, when it comes to actually using your knife, I have, I'm gonna say I have three tips. First tip is to use it often. Even when you're at home, don't don't only use your knife when you're out camping or something like that. The more you use your knife at home, the more comfortable you're going to be with it. And if you're comfortable with that knife and used to handling it, you're actually a lot less likely to cut yourself. Next is to keep it sharp and get a good quality sharpener, learn how to use it, learn how to keep that knife sharp for a couple of reasons. First of all, a sharp knife is much easier to use it's much more effective and it's actually safer uh, the reason being a dull knife you have to put so much more pressure behind it to get it to work that you're much more likely to slip and cut yourself so keep that knife sharp and it'll be a lot safer a lot less frustrating and a lot easier to use just more effective so what kind of sharpener do i recommend well, i if you're looking for some, sh- some sort of sharpening system, first, I recommend staying away from any sort of electrical sharpener. There's a certain amount of feel that goes into really getting a good edge on your knife. And I've found, personally, I just can't get that feel with any of the electrical, like automatic, motorized knife sharpeners. And I think that those just take, they take way more metal off of the knife than you actually need to, to get it sharp. So it's actually reducing the life of your knife also. Um, when you're, when you're looking for one, look for a sharpener where you can alternate strokes from one side of the blade to the other. Some sharpeners that I've seen the, just the way that they're set up, they would kind of encourage you to take several strokes on one side of the blade and then switch to the other side. The problem there is that you're actually very likely to roll the edge of that blade over. And once you've done that, you're, you're really never going to get that blade sharp without doing some major repair to that rolled edge. That's, that's very difficult to fix. And, and that rolled edge, what, what's actually happened is that the, uh, picture rolling over like a, a wave breaking and the actual sharp part of the blade is then pointed Literally pointed 180 degrees back in the wrong direction. It's literally rolled back over on itself, so the the part that should be doing the cutting is always going to be rounded over, and it's really never going to be sharp until you get those major repairs done to the blade. So, point being, um, you need a sharpener that's going to alternate strokes on either side of the blade, and what else? Um, to really get a blade sharp, you do need something that has multiple grits of stone, at least a coarse and a fine, and maybe we'll do a whole, probably do a whole episode on knife sharpening and knife care, because there's really some some interesting stuff that you need to understand about what's going on with the sharpener to really get your knife perfectly sharp. Um, final tip on sharpening, though, is once you've finished sharpening it, always finish that blade with a steel honing rod. Specifically a steel honing rod, not a ceramic honing rod. We'll talk more about that when we do our whole episode on knives. Final tip on handling or using your knife is to always make sure you're cutting away from yourself or other people. And even more importantly, make sure that you're cutting away from your off hand. Most, most knife injuries are actually like, if you're right-handed, most people cut their left hand because what they end up doing is holding something with their left hand while they're cutting with their right hand, but they cut toward their left hand and they end up slipping or, or whatever, or, or the knife actually does what it's supposed to do and cuts through whatever it's cutting right to their hand. That's how most people end up getting cut with a knife. So if you're right-handed, you're holding the knife and using it with your right hand, make sure that your left hand stays away from, from the front of, of that blade where you're cutting toward. Keep your, keep your other hand out of the way, cut away from yourself, away from your hand, away from other people. Bushcraft skill number eight, building a fire. Now we've had several episodes already where we've talked about fire starting, uh, Back in episodes 16 and 17 we did, actually I think it was like a top 10, it wasn't even a top 10, it was a, t- a countdown of 10 different fire starting methods. Starting with like the most modern, most effective methods and working our way back to much more difficult, more primitive fire starting methods of actually using a, uh, a wood bow drill for our, our final one on that. So that was kind of fun. So if you want to hear more about those different fire starting methods, whether it's a match or a magnifying glass or uh, flint and steel, those are all methods that we covered in those two episodes. So that was back in episodes 16 and 17. Now, a couple episodes ago in, in our, I think it was in the survival skills question and answer episode, we actually had Some questions about fire starting. So, we covered that kind of in depth there, but I'm gonna go ahead and give you a few tips on building your fire. So, first thing, make sure that wherever you are building your fire is both safe and legal, Uh, especially this year and in the last several years with the, the lack of rain that we've had. We've had high fire danger in a lot of the forest areas in the western United States. Um, other places in the world, Australia, has suffered some real bad wildfires. So make sure that where you're building your fire, first of all, it's legal to have a fire, um, that, that you're not in the middle of some fire restriction. And second of all, that it's in a safe place, where it's away from you know dry brush, or don't build it under a dead dry tree or something like that. Make sure that it's in a safe place. Now, any fire that you're building is basically the same. It's always going to start with either a spark or a flame. And you're going to build it from that from that spark or flame. And when I say a spark, I'm talking about using something like flint and steel or a ferro rod or even that ember that you get with a uh, fire piston. Those all create an ember or a spark. And something like a lighter or a match is going to create that that gives you that immediate flame. So you kind of get to skip that stage of turning an ember into that small flame. Anyway, once you're to that stage of having the flame, it's really all the same from there. No matter what kind of environment you're in, you're working from small pieces to large pieces. So you need to start with some sort of tinder. The tinder is the smallest stuff that's going to light on fire and burn really quick to get that next layer started. So tinder could be, um, I know a lot of people say dryer lint or something like that. So many of our modern clothes though are impregnated with such, with all of these fire retardant chemicals and the, the materials themselves may be fire retardant. So I've found that honestly, dryer lint anymore is not usually great tinder. It's, it's actually kind of difficult to light it on fire oftentimes. Anyway, um, dry grass, uh, wood shavings, anything like that, that smallest stuff, that's your tinder. And then you're going to work your way up. Um, I like to think of it as like pencil lead size. And well, let's go through some of the sizes, just kind of how I think about it. I think like pencil lead and pencil or smaller uh, and like little finger size, thumb size, then like maybe half of my wrist, then like a full wrist. And from there up to your, your full size firewood logs and each of those sizes, you're going to gather a whole pile of stuff that's that size. And I like to just lay it out in order right where I'm building my fire and you get that tinder going and then start taking those small pencil lead size sticks and pile them on top of that and once those are well lit then you can start piling that next size up and then and so on until you get up to your full size logs. Now I always tell people just go ahead and gather way more stuff for each of those piles than you think you're going to need instead of having you know just a little handful and thinking oh I can probably get it going with this much get like five times as much as you think you're going to need and It'll, it'll actually help you get your fire started faster because that much material burning is actually going to create more heat. And the way this works is the heat from the smaller stuff actually warms the lar- the next larger size up to the point where it can combust. So So you have to provide a certain amount of heat. You can do that faster if you have more fuel. So The more more fuel you have gathered, the faster you're actually going to get your fire going. So I find it's worth it. Just avoid the frustration. And especially if everything around you is damp, it's even more important to have more of that stuff. So the process works exactly the same with damp material. You're just also going through a stage of basically cooking the moisture out of the next layer that you're starting to light. So you have a little fire going and you start piling slightly larger sticks on top of that. It's going to take a certain amount of time to cook that moisture out so that you have dry fuel and then heat it up and then it will combust. So the the procedure is exactly the same. It just takes a little longer and is a lot easier with more fuel if you're dealing with stuff that's damp. Uh, Along those same lines, if you are dealing with damp material, It's even more important to split it before you start, before you try to light it, because the inside is always going to be drier. And if you can gather stuff, gather your fire starting materials from like standing dead trees, as opposed to picking it up off the ground, that stuff's always going to be drier also. So if there's a dead tree and you can reach up and snap a branch off of it, and then snap the smaller twigs off of it and use those that's going to be drier than a branch or sticks that you pick up off the ground. Another tip for your fire starting, if you struggle with fire starting, instead of trying to build your fire in like a cone shape or the teepee shape, go with like a log cabin shape. So you're basically just going to do horizontal stacks of your fuel material and alternate directions of, of how those sticks are oriented. It's going to it's going to be more stable for one. So it's less likely to fall over and it's just an easier way to light a fire. So if you're struggling with that, that cone format, just go with the log cabin style on as you build your fire. Um, what else? I always like to have at least three fire starting methods with me. And by that, I mean at least three, like tried and true non-improvised primary fire starting methods. So this does not count something like using your car battery to get a fire going. That should not be something that you're doing on a regular basis. That's a a good emergency skill to have, but don't make that your go-to for one of your three methods. And uh, something like a, a fire piston, although I really like the fire piston, and if you're not familiar with them, basically it's a little two-piece thing and it has a, a tube and a piston that fits inside the tube. You take a little bit of char cloth and you put it right in the end of that piston and you slap it with your hand to rapidly compress it. That rapid compression actually creates enough heat to ignite that char cloth. You can then take that out and it has a little ember in it. It's burning. You can wrap that inside your, your tinder, start blowing on it. And you can work that into a flame. I really like using those. I think they're one of the coolest things, but I don't like having that as one of my my primary fire starting methods. So uh, same thing with like flint and steel that's that's a fun thing to learn how to do. I think it's a valuable skill to have, but... I'm not going to have a flint and steel and count that as one of my three. I may take it with me anyway. I may choose to use it just for practice to get my fire going, but I want to have three methods that I know will work when I really need to get a fire going. So typically for me, that's going to be matches, a lighter, and a ferro rod. Those are kind of my my go-to three methods. Now I do some upgrades to my matches. I will take Here's how I do that. I call them super matches. Maybe there's a better name for them. It's what it's what I call them. What I do is I take a strike anywhere match. I take a cotton string, tie it to the match and I do tight, very tight wraps around the entire shaft of the match in two layers. So I'll go all the way down and back and leave a little two or three inch tail of that string hanging off, tie it off nice and tight and So it's going all the way from the tail of the match, all the way up to the base of the head, do a bunch of those, heat up some paraffin wax. So just standard candle wax and dip those matches down into the the hot wax. Now what happens is that that liquid wax is going to soak into that cotton string, basically creating a candle wick. And the other thing it does is it completely seals the match once it cools. So even the head of the match is covered Now that's sealed up so that you could drop it in the water. It's completely waterproof. You can take it out of the water and immediately use it. What you do have to do is take your thumbnail and just scrape the wax off of the head of that match. You can then strike it. And once the head of that match is lit, it'll actually start to melt the wax that's right next to the head. And you have that cotton string and wax. That's all going to start to burn just like a candle wick. And that entire match... Is usually going to burn for somewhere between three to maybe five minutes. It actually takes quite a while for that entire thing to burn, and gives you a good long time to get your fire lit. So, so that's what I actually use instead of just regular matches, as I do that little upgrade to those super matches. Uh, ferro rod is if I could only have one fire starting method, it does take a little more practice but a Pharaoh rod is going to start a whole lot more fires for me than a handful of matches. You know, you with each match, you only get at most one fire going from that match. If it blows out, you're kind of out of luck. You have to use another whole match just to get your fire going with that Pharaoh rod. You could feasibly start hundreds and hundreds of fires with the same Pharaoh rod. Um, Now, theoretically, you could start a whole lot of fires with a lighter too. I'm just talking a standard cigarette lighter. Uh, The trouble is if those get wet, it can make it, they they just do not work as well um, wet. So you're going to have to get your lighter dried out. Sometimes they start working again after you get them dried out. Sometimes they don't. So it's definitely a good method to have with you, but uh, the ferro rod it's probably more reliable but there there is that trade-off between um, the skill level that it takes to use it the practice that you have to put into it to kind of become proficient with it and and how reliable it is so what I do is I always just have all three with me and that gives me the confidence that I'm going to be able to get that fire started now the one kind of bonus fire starting method that I usually have with me on any sort of backcountry trip is I will carry a single, road flare. Now that road flare, I know that I can get that thing lit even if I can't feel my hands anymore because because they're really easy to light. And once that's lit, that's going to give me oh, I think those usually burn for 15-20 minutes or maybe even more, maybe up to half an hour. So that's going to give you quite a bit of time with a really hot flame in order to get a really good fire going. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of my absolute worst case emergency. I absolutely have to get a fire going right now. I can't feel my hands. I'm starting to go hypothermic and I need a fire as soon as I can. That's when I would pull that road flare out as my emergency fire starter that I know is going to work. Okay. Bushcraft skill. Number nine is recognizing danger. Now The thing that most people's mind immediately goes to is wildlife, wild animals, bears, mountain lions, wolves, whatever it is. And although you do need to be careful about those, animals actually don't pose that much of a danger to you, Um, especially in North America. We already talked about grizzly bears. I'm not saying to take that lightly at all grizzly bears can be very dangerous, but statistically speaking, you are very unlikely to be attacked by a bear, especially if you take just a few precautions. We talked about those camp precautions when we were talking about setting up your camp in, in that bushcraft skill. Now, I would say all wildlife, you do need to give animals their space. And a lot of that's really for the animal safety more than your safety, you don't you don't need to be making the animal uncomfortable. You don't need to be adding stress to the animal's life by making it feel threatened, where it has to run off. Just observe the animals, enjoy them. Don't feed them. Um, along along the lines of dangerous animals, though, let's let's talk about some statistics when it comes to dangerous animals. So, the number of people who are killed. Annually, by bears, wolves, and mountain lions, is basically negligible compared to the number that are killed by other animals. I realize that a lot of this has to do with where you live. For example, here in Wyoming, elephants and hippos are not really a concern at all. And if I was in a place where elephants and hippos were a concern, grizzly bears would not be. So I get it. But elephants and hippos each kill around 500 people per year. Uh, And so those are some of the deadliest animals out there, some of the most dangerous animals. And it's terrible. Each of those is a tragedy. But big picture, that's very, very few people. You are very unlikely to be killed by an elephant or a hippo. Uh, crocodiles on the other hand, kill about twice that many, around a thousand people per year. Uh, domestic dogs kill around 35,000 people per year. And we choose to have them in our homes with us. Now I do realize that some of these statistics do have to do with your exposure to those animals. And the fact that we have domestic dogs in our home probably drives that number up. If half the people out there had a hippo in their home, that, the the hippo fatality numbers would probably be a lot higher. I get it. Um, Snakes. Okay, now we're talking wild animals again. Snakes kill around 100,000 people per year. So that's 100 times as many people dying from snake bite as die from crocodile attacks. The next one up above snakes is actually the one that I'm personally most concerned about when I'm out there, and that's other humans. Humans kill about 450,000 humans per year. So when you're in the backcountry, you do need to realize that in that situation that you've placed yourself in, where you tend to be away from other people, you tend to be away from the availability of help, you tend to be in a position where someone might not miss you for several days. If you disappear, you are kind of making yourself a target for a certain very terrible subset of the human population that might that might choose to target you so not to discourage you from getting out there and enjoying the back country but just be aware that you are putting yourself in that uh in that position of being at a little higher risk where you could actually be actively targeted by another predatory human so like I said, that's, that's the one of all of these animals, that's the one that I'm the most concerned about personally. Um, and the most dangerous animal of all that tops even the, the humans is mosquitoes. Mosquitoes responsible for the death of about 750,000 people annually. So maybe that'll just put it in a little bit of perspective I'm not worried about the bears or mountain lions or wolves when when there are all of those other things that are killing literally thousands of times more people like i said though don't still don't take the presence of a grizzly bear lightly it's still something to take very seriously give all animals the the space and respect that are needed for both you and the wild animals to be safe um Maybe more importantly than the wildlife side of things, when it comes to recognizing danger, though, is weather. Recognizing dangerous weather, which we talked about back in, I forget what skill number it was, but your ability to predict the weather. So recognizing that dangerous weather is much more likely to save your life than recognizing a dangerous animal. Um, Unstable ground, whether that's mud, mud, rock slides, boulders, unstable boulders, quicksand, quicksand, anything like that, any sort of unstable ground. Um, unstable trees. Look around. If you're camping in the forest, take a good look around at the health and stability of the trees around you. You don't want to have a tree fall on your tent while you're sleeping inside of it. That would be, that'd be a disaster. Um, unstable ice and snow. So this is probably a a much bigger killer than probably all of the animal deaths combined is people falling through the ice into a frozen lake. So that unstable ice or snow, like I said, that could be a frozen lake. That could be where snow has drifted over a stream, and the stream's actually flowing underneath that that snow bank and you don't actually have solid ice and you could fall through that snow into that cold water and suddenly be in a really bad position um, where you're wet, you're cold, your surroundings are wet and cold, which makes it more difficult to get a fire going, and you're starting to experience hypothermia. Um, Things can rapidly deteriorate when we're talking about getting wet in a winter environment. Um, it could also be a crevasse of some sort that's covered in snow that you could fall into and either die from the fall or possibly even worse, get injured in the fall and not have any way to get out and get help and just slowly sit there and, and die in that crevasse. That would not be a great way to go. Um, avalanche, if, if you were the least bit uncertain about avalanche safety in the mountains, stay completely away from anything that could possibly be an avalanche slide, and even uh, drifts and cornices. Uh, Snow has a way of drifting over the edges of cliffs on mountaintops, ridges, mountain peaks, and creating these cornices that may appear to be fairly solid that you could actually walk out onto, but there's really nothing below you except for maybe several feet of snow and an open air. So any sort of unstable snow and ice can be very, very dangerous. So like I said, the ability to recognize danger and, and the examples I gave, those are just a few examples of the many dangers out there. So so be aware of those and develop that skill of being able to recognize the danger and know what to do about it. Know how to avoid that danger or know how to mitigate Mitigate the risk of that danger. Finally, bushcraft skill number ten: emergency medicine. Now, we could do, and we probably should do. I'm actually writing this down right now. We should do at least one whole episode on backcountry medicine. Um, might even get like a a doctor in here who's an expert on backcountry medicine to talk to us about that. That'd be a lot of fun so we're not going to really go in depth on it. Let me just ask you a few questions. Um when we're when we're thinking about emergency medicine in the backcountry. Now also keep in mind that developing all of these other skills, these other nine skills that we talked about, recognizing danger, predicting the weather, um what else, how you set up your camp, being able to use a knife, being able to start a fire, all of these other skills, even how you pack your backpack and avoiding an injury from your backpack, all of those other skills will hopefully help you avoid the need, prevent the need for emergency medicine. However, when, when you do have some sort of medical emergency, you need to know what to do. So, Instead of going in depth on what you should do or what you should take with you, let me just ask you a few questions. Consider, consider this. What are, your, what are your most likely injuries, actually? And along those same lines, is there something you could do to go ahead and mitigate the risk of that injury? Like, If you say, well, my most, my most likely injury is cutting myself with my knife, well, so work on your knife handling skills so that you're less likely to cut yourself. If your most likely emergency is falling into cold water, maybe you need to do some things to consider staying away from that cold water. What emergency medical equipment are you carrying with you? What do you have in your in your backcountry pack right now? If we did a bag dump right now, what medical equipment do you have? And along those lines, do you know how to use it? if you're carrying a tourniquet, which you should, you should have at least one tourniquet. I would say probably at least two if we're being smart and realistic about this. If you're carrying those tourniquets, do you know how to use them? And I'm not talking about, did you look at the directions? Did you watch the video online? Have you gotten it out? Have you actually taken a tourniquet and put it on yourself or someone else for practice? And if you have not done that, then I'm going to say, you don't know how to use that tourniquet. You have to know how to do this stuff. And it kind of goes for all of these skills. Just listening to me talk about the skill is not enough for you to be proficient with the skill or watching a video online is not enough for you to to say, okay, now, now I'm good with fire starting. I watched a YouTube video on how to, how to use my ferro rods. I'm good. No, you actually have to get out there go out in the rain and build a fire using your ferro rod. Do that a few times, get comfortable doing that, and then you can check that box off and say, yes, I have this fire starting skill. I have that skill. So even more important is this emergency medicine stuff. Don't just buy the equipment and put it in your bag and think that you're magically going to know how to use it when the time comes any more than you would just magically be able to start a fire if you had never done that before. Um, next question, what is, what is your goal when it comes to your treatment of injuries? And for me, I kind of break this into two categories. I'm going to carry medical equipment with me that's going to allow me to keep going if I have a minor injury. So maybe that's a minor cut or abrasion or blister or something like that, where I can turn that into something that's not a trip-ending event. I can, I can treat it and go on with my, with my trip. So that's, that's one side of things. The other side of things is getting out. So a more major injury, a, any sort of fracture, whether that's a simple or compound fracture, um, a major, major bleeding where I'm treating it with that tourniquet, that sort of stuff. I need the equipment that's going to allow me to survive and get out. To get professional medical treatment. So so I, any medical equipment that I'm carrying with me, I'm going to group into those two categories. This is either something that allows me to stay out here and keep going, or this is something that allows me to get out alive. And anything in between, is that something that I even really need to have with me, adding that weight to my pack? So like I said, we'll probably do a whole episode just on backcountry medicine coming up Because that could be, I feel that that could be some really good information for everybody to have. So those were our 10 backcountry bushcraft skills. Let's recap them real quick. So we started just by mentioning two of the most important skills that were not on our list, but just kind of honorable mentions or, or something of physical fitness and land navigation. After that, skill number one, Packing your backpack. Skill number two. Managing your clothing system. Skill number three. Tying knots and using rope. Skill number four. Crossing water. Skill number five. Predicting the weather. Skill number six. Setting up your camp. Skill number seven. Handling a knife. Skill number eight. Starting a fire. Skill number nine recognizing danger and skill number ten emergency medicine now my question for you is do any of these skills have you thinking are you thinking oh maybe my maybe if I'm honest with myself my fire starting skills are lacking a little bit maybe I do okay starting that fire in the in the fire pit in the backyard but if if it actually came to Being dropped out in the woods in the cold and the wet, with limited resources, would I be able to get a fire started quickly? Or maybe it's your your knot tying skills. Can you actually tie those those three essential knots that we talked about—the bowline, the clove hitch, and the sheet bend? Could you tie all of those knots without looking up how to tie the knot? Could you do it with your eyes closed? If not, maybe you're not tying and rope work needs a little work, a little practice. Well what if I what if I dropped you somewhere with a canoe and five hundred pounds of gear and told you to load up the canoe and paddle to another location on the other side of a lake? Is that something that would be really intimidating to you? Or or do you say yeah I, I know what I'm doing with that. I could safely load the canoe with that 500 pounds of gear and easily paddle it across the lake. If not, maybe you need to go learn how to do that. Um, Are you awkward with any of your outdoor backcountry gear? Are you awkward with your knife? Are you awkward using a lighter, setting up your tent? And how is your ability to manage your clothing and stay dry? Are you, are you confident in your abilities to do that? If not practice those skills, think about how you're, how you're doing that intentionally, because a lot of this does come down to the intention of thinking through the process and making those good choices. Now, if all of these skills, you're saying, I'm just lacking in all of these skills, start with an easy camping trip. Maybe that's, maybe that's just in your backyard but start with that easy camping trip and intentionally practice these skills as though you were further out in the backcountry, but in the safety of a, a more controlled environment. Like I said, even if, if that just means starting in your backyard, or then maybe a, a car camp fairly close to home, a, a rented campsite, then maybe a canoe camp, because maybe that sounds intimidating right now. But trust me, a canoe camp is much easier than a backpack backpack camp, because in a canoe A large canoe, you can carry up to maybe 800 pounds, including yourself and your gear. You can take basically anything you want in your canoe. You don't have to be as limited on your gear. And then maybe the next step is that backpack camp where you actually have to load all of your gear into your pack, carry it on your back, hike in several miles, set up your camp. But don't start with that. Start with those easier steps, the backyard camp, the car camp, the canoe camp, and then uh increase your your difficulty from there as you practice these skills so by the time you get to that back that backcountry hike backpack camp and by the time you get there you're going to have your system dialed in you're going to have your gear dialed in and you're going to be much more comfortable with all these skills so that's all i have for this week thanks for listening to our top 10 essential bushcraft skills hope you enjoyed it maybe learned something, and maybe got you thinking about some of your proficiency with these skills. That's all I have for this week. Until next week, pursue your mastercraft. Bye. Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin MacLeod incompetech.com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 creativecommons.org if you need some of your own original music go check out Kevin's other work at his website incompetech.com